um, want to make sure you're awake because we're going to be talking about a pretty upbeat subject today. We're going to be talking about death and dying. Okay, so it's maybe not the most upbeat subject, but I think it's a much needed one. If we received all the wisdom of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, uh, all that it had to offer to us, and we skipped over this, we would miss out on something I think incredibly important. Because if there's anything that a Christian should excel at, above all other people on the face of the earth, it's how we approach death. It's uh, above all people on the face of the earth, we as Christians should die well. Now I think that probably makes sense to us intuitively because we would claim to have Christ as the hope of our lives. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, has come into the world and he gives eternal life to all who trust in him. And so we recognize and know that death doesn't have the final say. It's not the final chapter of our lives. We live on in Christ, right? Amen. So we should be ready to die well. I once heard a pastor, John Piper, many years ago, probably 15 years ago, say that his goal in the ministry was to help his people die well. Like he said, that was his primary goal. Now at the time when I heard that, I thought, eh, that seems a little dark, But as I think I've gotten older, well, I have gotten older for sure, (laughs) and hopefully a little wiser, and I've thought about that, I think it's very loving and wise. As a pastor, to want to help the people that he shepherds die well. And so I've seen that as a foundational part of my ministry as, as well. Now, of course, I would say that to face death well equips you to live well. And that's the point for what do we do when we leave here? Well, we want to live in light of the things that the scripture teaches us about death and dying. But in order to live well, we need to think about death and not just death in general, but our own death. And that's where the rub comes because we don't like to talk about death, especially our own Even how, we ha- even how we talk about funerals today. Notice how more and more funerals are called something else, like a celebration of life service or something. Now, I'm not opposed to that, uh, necessarily, but I think it might communicate that underneath that, there's a fear of recognizing what happened and why we're here. It's a memorial service. It's a it's a funeral. We are remembering someone who has died. Now the Jews in the Old Testament really knew how to throw a party when someone got married. And they also really knew how to mourn and grieve when someone died. You ever notice that in the Old Testament? On Saturday mornings as men were going through uh, men in the Old Testament and God's calling upon them. And we got to uh, Joshua And Joshua's calling ended with Moses' death. And Moses died, and it says the people of Israel mourned his death for 30 days. We see something similar with Samuel. We see something similar with Joshua. When people died, it was a big deal. It's evident that the world that we live in and also the Christian world that we inhabit have 
has an aversion to talking truly about the reality of death. At least I think so. And in one sense, there's a good reason for that. The Bible does not describe death as a friend. See, there's two ditches we can fall into. There's one where we just, we don't want to talk about it at all. And then there's another where we kind of romanticize the idea of death. And and we kind of turn it into something that's really amazing. Just can't wait to die sort of thing. Death is not a friend. It's an enemy. In fact, it's the last enemy. The last enemy that will be put under the feet of Jesus Christ is death. And that won't happen until he comes. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and 55 says that when Christ comes and we put on immortal bodies, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But until then, we experience the sting of death. When others die, and one day when we die. Death is a formidable enemy. Jesus saw it as this. Remember when Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus? And uh, it says a couple of times that he was greatly troubled. Well, some suggest that that could mean Jesus was outraged. There's something wrong about death. There's something wrong about it. It is an enemy of ours and even more of God's. It wasn't the way things were supposed to be. He created Adam and Eve to live and to live forever, but then sin entered the world and death entered with it. So sin is an enemy. It kind of makes sense why we don't like to talk about death. Though it is unnatural, though it's an enemy, Solomon the preacher, though, says we gain wisdom by pondering death. By thinking about it. And so that's what we're going to do today. But our passage seems somewhat paradoxical. Solomon says it's actually better to go to the house of mourning. It's better to go to a funeral house. It's better to go to a memorial service than to go to the house of feasting, than to go to a celebration, maybe, maybe a festival or a marriage celebration. Sorrow is better than laughter. Now, those are not absolute statements. It's not bad to go to a celebration. It's good to laugh, but it's also good for us to remember the reality and think about the reality of death. Verse 2 says this, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Verse 2 gives us two reasons why it's good to ponder death. And I want to press those upon us today. It's good to ponder death for two reasons, verse 2 says. The first is that death is the destiny of every person, including you. Okay, some are closer to death than others, but it is the end of all mankind for all of us. Have you ever taken a cold shower on purpose? Who's ever done that before? Okay? Maybe you've done like that ice bucket challenge or something ridiculous like that. Well, if you've ever done that, there's the shock of it, but it's also kind of invigorating. And if you're a little sleepy, a cold shower will wake you up, right? It's kind of what this truth lands on us like. It's like a cold shower. It may not feel good, but it's good for us to be slapped in the face with some cold, hard truth at times. 
it's good, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting because this is the end of all mankind, because this is your end. This isn't pessimistic, right? This isn't like just being negative. It's not negative talk. This is a certain truth. Only two men escaped physical death in the Bible. Do you remember who they are? One was Enoch. Not this Enoch, but the the one in the Bible, Genesis 3 or 4. Uh, I think it's chapter 4 where it says, Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. God just took him. And then the other was Elijah. Elijah was taken up in the chariot of fire as Elisha watched on. Two men, okay, two people in all of history that escaped physical death. I don't think we should expect that to happen again. So take those two out. Those two are kind of anomalies. And the death rate is a staggering 100%. It is one absolute certainty for all of us. And so unless the Lord Jesus, okay, there's one other possibility. Jesus comes first, okay. Maranatha, come Lord, right? But unless Jesus comes first, we will return to dust. We came from dust, and Ecclesiastes 9.20, or excuse me, 3.20 says, to dust we shall return. Whether you acknowledge this or not is irrelevant. This is one of those, this, well, This is not my truth. It's not Solomon's truth. This is true truth. Whether you acknowledge it or not, this is a fact. But facing this cold, hard truth is good and helpful. It doesn't matter if you're great or small, going to die. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, you're going to face death. It doesn't matter if you're a sinner or a saint, death is coming. Black, white, brown, male, female, young, old, It doesn't matter. Death comes to all. Listen to what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9, 2, and 3. He says, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As as the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. What is that event? Death. It happens to all. Death is an equal opportunity visitor. It doesn't pick favorites. It comes For everyone. If you live under the sun, death will come knocking on your door, and in the end, it will prevail upon you. It will come in, it will visit you. Technology won't keep you from dying. There's a futurist named Ray Kurzweil, kind of an eclectic guy. He's an atheist, too, which what I'm about to tell you makes sense. An atheist would say something like this. He said, he, he believes that by 2030, we will achieve immortality. We will achieve immortality because scientists will be able to inject nanobots into bodies to repair decaying tissue and so forth. It's a pipe dream, right? We know that's not true. It's a vain hope. It's the best atheist got. Maybe technology will save us. 
it's good for us to reckon with our own mortality. We live among a race of people called the human race who are dying. And after we die, we don't just cease to exist. We go to meet our maker. We go to meet God. It's good for us to consider this because this is the end of all mankind. You and I and everyone else that's alive today or ever will live will go the way of all flesh. We will go into the ground, back to dust. But that's not the only reason we should say it's better to go into the house of mourning than the house of feasting. There's another reason that goes right along with it, and it's this. The living will take to heart the reality of death. Won't just brush it aside, won't just balk at it, won't just say, this sounds like a a downer. The living, those who are living, will take this to heart. That's what Solomon says. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting because this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. The living will lay it to heart. To lay to heart means to keep on our hearts. It means to remember. It means to meditate on, to think about, to give it some of your attention. We're to lay this to heart. Of course, the heart is not just our affections, because you might say, well, am I supposed to like, you just told me I'm not supposed to romanticize this. We often, in modern times, think of the heart as this place where our emotions are at. Biblically, the heart refers to the command and control center of you. What has your heart has you. What's on your heart is going to affect you. It's going to influence you will have a massive impact on you. We all know how this works. When something is on our heart, a fear, a joy, a love, it really does impact us. It has a kind of controlling influence for bad or for good. And so Solomon says, the living will lay this reality to heart that this is the end of all mankind. Physical death. Let this be on your heart. Don't rush out of the house of mourning. Don't quickly push these thoughts out of your mind. Linger over them. A godly man and preacher in Britain from the 20th century named Martin Lloyd-Jones, near the end of his life, about a year before he died, uh, he had, toward toward the end of his life, the last few years of his life, he had a lot of health problems or some fairly significant health problems. He wasn't able to travel and do preaching like he did before, and so he was at this small gathering near the end of his life, and he said the following about death and dying. It's worth us pondering. He said, we don't give enough time to death and to going on, and it's a very strange thing. Death is the one certainty, and yet we don't think about it. We're too busy. We just allow life and circumstances to so occupy our minds that we don't stop and think. Some people say sudden death is the way to go. Be so wonderful. But I have come to the conclusion that that is quite wrong. Listen to this. Is, this is wise. He said, I think the way we go out of this world is very important. The death, or the hope of sudden death is based on the fear of death. It is the hope of wanting to slip through death rather than facing death. Death should be faced victoriously in hope. 
not hoping to slip through death in the middle of the night or just go quickly. I mean, if that happens, praise God, but we want to be prepared. Of course, as Christians, we have the hope that death is not the final for us, that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord, and the one who believes in Jesus will, in an ultimate sense, live on. When my dad breathed his last, we were talking about this a couple weeks ago because it was the 11th anniversary of my dad dying. We were standing around his gravesite, and when he breathed his last in the hospice bed, the next moment he was in the presence of Christ. We believe that. We try, we, that's, that's our hope, no doubt. So we can face death victoriously, but listen, brothers and sisters, we have to face it. We should not see the comfort given in the gospel as an escape from the reality of death. Rather, we should see it as a way of courageously facing the comfort given, us to, given to us in the gospel doesn't help us to escape death or the reality of it, to out of sight, out of mind sort of thing. No, no, no. It helps us to face courageously the reality of death when it comes. The phrase here stands out to me that the living will lay it to heart. Who is this talking about? Who are the living? Those who are alive, the living will lay this to heart. Well, the most basic answer would be that it's those who have not yet died, right? Those who have not yet died will lay this to heart. Those who are still alive in the body will take to heart the reality of death. And this is certainly the hope. We hope that everyone who's alive when they're at a funeral is taking some of these things to heart, but we recognize that's not always the case. We all know people who have not taken seriously or laid this truth to heart. They seem to be unconcerned about their souls before God and unconcerned about what happens to them when they die and so forth. I have a friend who, uh, he was at a funeral that I preached at and he is not a believer. I want him to be, desperately. But he seemed to be taking some of these things to heart for a short season But ultimately, I don't think he really did. Not in a saving way, anyways. And usually now when I bring up the subject of Christ or God or, you know, standing before God or anything like that, he changes the subject. We all understand that happens. So who is the living here that will take it to heart? I think there's another way to understand this. It's those who are spiritually alive will lay this to heart. Those who are spiritually awakened will lay to heart the reality of death. So what should we lay to heart? Well, in addition to the fact that we're going to die, let me give you a couple more things we should lay to heart. First, the brevity of life. How short life is. It's amazing. Whether you live to be 102 or 88 or 65 or 40 or 28 or 13, life is short. Think about it. What is 100 years compared to eternity? It's like nothing. It's like yesterday. It's gone. James tells us this. He says, what is your life? 
For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Your life, my life, is like the morning mist over Sailorville Lake. It's there just for a little while and then it's gone. You and I should lay this to heart. Listen, I'm telling you, teenagers, okay? I swear I was your age two weeks ago. I'm serious. And if you're 60, you're looking at me who's 45, you're like, yeah, it seems like I was your age two weeks ago. I mean, life just zooms by. It is so short. We should lay this to heart. Then we should lay to heart the fact that when we die, what comes next? There's this sign. Um, I think it's, it's whenever we take, when it's, when we've taken road trips, I think it's out west. So it's like either in Nebraska or eastern Colorado or something. There's this sign. There's probably other ones throughout the country on the interstate. And it's this big billboard that says, I think it's based off of Amos 4.12. It says, prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God. What comes after we die? We stand before God. We stand before him. We ought to take that to heart. We ought to take to heart the fact that, that we stand before God, that we're going to meet God. Now you might say, I already know him. You're going to meet him in a way that you have not yet met him. You're going to stand right in his unmediated presence. We ought to take that to heart. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. Then we stand before the judge of all the earth. Listen, when we take to heart our mortality, the brevity of life, and the fact that we are going to meet God when we die, this can help us to prepare to die well. I fear that many just don't even want to think about th- things like this. And so many, even Christians, or at least professing Christians, they face those last few weeks or months of life and are all out of sorts. Then, of course, we should lay to heart that our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong to God, belong both body and soul in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is how we face death victoriously. Well, when we face death squarely and lay it to heart, there are two outcomes we see in our text. Ecclesiastes 7, 1 to 4, not only give us two reasons to consider death, it's the end of all mankind, and the living will lay this to heart and be affected by it positively, but it also gives us two outcomes when we do this. The two outcomes are joy and wisdom. Aren't those things we want? Joy and wisdom. Let's look at joy first. Verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by by, by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now this seems counterintuitive. We think, no, no, no. Laughter is way better than sorrow. But Solomon, the man of wisdom, said, no, no, sorrow is better than laughter. And this is, 
not novel to Ecclesiastes. Psalm 126, 5 and 6 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. When you and I consider the fleeting nature of life, how short life is and then death comes, and when we die we're going to meet God, all of this can produce a deep and lasting joy, a gladness of heart that we can't have otherwise. And here's how I think it works. Think about this with me. When we consider the end of our lives and the things that we enjoy in life under the sun coming to an end, it can concentrate our attention on enduring joys that will never come to an end and can never be taken from us. Did you get that? When we're facing life, or the end of life, under the sun, and we face losing things that we enjoy, we find joy in, good things that God gives us, it can concentrate our attention on finding joy in things that can never be taken from us. And actually, I think this enables us to enjoy the good gifts God gives us under the sun even more. You see, your, your work and activities and hobbies and taking vacation and your family, even the relations you enjoy, all of these things are good gifts from God, but they cannot bear the weight of all of your joy. They just can't. You were made for God. So, let's consider two enduring joys that this can give us. One is not a thing, it's a person, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, okay? Death is your enemy, no doubt, but even more, it's the enemy of Christ. He cares about your death more than you do. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that encouraging? He cares about your dying more than you do. He wants you to die well more than you want to die well. And he did something about it. Okay? So much so that he died the death you deserved, bearing the wrath of God in your place as a substitute. And he tasted death on your behalf in order to destroy the devil, the one who has the power of death, and to free you from the fear of dying. I find that deeply encouraging. He died to free his people from the fear of death. And it's not just what Jesus has done in the past to deal with death so that we don't have to fear it. He's also with us in the present. He's ever present with us. David prophetically spoke of our Lord as the good shepherd in Psalm 23. Who does not leave us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone. No way. He walks with us. He leads us. Sometimes he, has, sometimes he carries us. All the way through. And when death threatens us, it will not destroy us. It certainly can't separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. No way. The all-conquering love of Jesus Christ will keep us and even cause us to overwhelmingly conquer in and through death. We, learned, we talked about this last Thursday in study. In all these things, we are 
more than conquerors through him who loved us. And one of those things is death. Death, the enemy, will bow the knee to Jesus as he uses this enemy to serve our ultimate good. And in the end, our Lord Jesus will put death, your enemy, his enemy, under his feet for good and raise you bodily. And so we ought to rejoice in the Lord, right? In his presence. The presence of this one is fullness of joy at his right hand, our pleasures forevermore. But there's another thing that we, enduring joy, that we can set our attention on, and it's this, eternal life. Death is such a daunting destroyer, which makes the, the gift of eternal life inexpressibly precious. Now, I personally, and I could be wrong on this, but I think prior generations talked about and thought about eternal life more than we do. You know, they're, like the most popular books in the bookstores, Christian bookstores these days, are things like how you can have your best life now and things like that. Whereas I think prior generations were looking to the future world more. And I think there's reasons for that. I mean, think 100 years ago, I think in, I think in 1900, the average life expectancy was 47. I'm 45. Like I'd, I'd be reaching that life expectancy soon. Now it's, is it 80 now? I mean, the, the child death rate was much higher. I mean, people were surrounded by death much more closely in prior generations. Medical advances and technology have made life so much easier for us, so much more comfortable. Of course, we ought to be thankful for these things. I'm not saying we shouldn't be thankful for these things. We certainly are. Air conditioning, central heat, stuff like that. It's good things, okay, medicine, and so forth. But I think we need to work harder to feed our joy on the riches of eternal life than previous generations that were surrounded by death more readily than we are. Peter describes this life, eternal life, as an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Beloved, nothing in this life under the sun can be described that way. Everything's perishing. Everything's defiled by sin. Everything is fading. Eternal life It's not. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being kept for salvation ready to be revealed. This is future. And it's something that we can enjoy or taste, get a foretaste of even now and rejoice in this great gift. So brothers and sisters, when we consider death, our own death, It can produce joy in us when we lay these things to heart. And it can also produce wisdom. And of course, Ecclesiastes, that's where everything in this book is driving. It's a book of wisdom. It's a book of inscrutable wisdom. It's a book of God's wisdom. It's a book written by a man who had tried everything under the sun. He had tried to find joy and life in everything under the sun, and he found it futile. 
But the result is that he became more wise as he sought God. Verse four says this, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Wisdom, it's been said, is truth applied to all of life. Wisdom is truth applied or knowledge applied to life. So wisdom is for living. It's not just to fill our brains with more information. It's for living. Paul said in Ephesians 5, pay careful attention how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time. The wisdom we gain when we linger in the house of mourning, when we consider our own end, should drive us to do things that matter. That's wisdom. To do things that matter. To not fritter away all of our lives doing such trivial and meaningless things. Anyone ever convicted about now, listen, I don't think we should, we've got to be careful here, okay? But is anyone ever convicted about how you waste time? Me too. <laughs> Me too. We ought to do things that matter. Our motto should be 1 Peter 4.2. That's our desire to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, in these bodies, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Live the rest of our days for the will of God. Life is short. We should want to do things that matter. And listen, I'm not saying that's a list of like six things, like be a missionary, share the gospel with people, read your Bibles, worship, you know, sing worship songs, pray. You know, those, I'm not saying that. What, what does Paul say? Whatever you do in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God through him. We should do everything we do unto the Lord for his glory. And the things that we do, it it ought to be narrowed down to, is is this God's will? Is this something that pleases the Lord? J.C. Ryle once urged people to be men and women of one thing, and that one thing was, he said, to have a burning desire to please God, to do his will, to advance his glory in the world in every possible way. C.T. Studd, he was a missionary to China, Africa. I think he died in Africa. He had this poem, it's a long poem, But at the end of each verse, there is this refrain that I I learned this years ago and I've never forgotten it. I hope you won't as well. One life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. One life to live, it's going to be passed soon. The only thing that's going to matter, the only thing that will last is what's done for Christ. Wise living is also serious living. Our lives should be about more than just floating around from one fun thing to the next. Now, I'm not against fun, okay? If you were a fly on the wall in my house, you would see us having a lot of fun. We turn the music up. 
I would never dance in front of you like I do in front of my kids and my wife. But we dance, we sing, we laugh, we play a lot of games, we have a lot of fun. But in our society right now, the highest good is to be entertained all the time. There's a book written in the 80s that was called, I can't remember the author's name right now, but it was called Entertained to Death. In the 80s. What about now? Entertained into oblivion. I mean, we just are, there's entertainment everywhere, and we think we got to be entertained all the time. Where's the seriousness about life? We need the kind of gravity that thinking about our death gives. It gives a sense of seriousness to life. And even to joy. And even to the recreational things we do, it gives more weight and gravity to it. Matthew Henry, he was a commentator, wrote a commentary on the entire Bible. He tells the story or told the story of a man who was a British statesman who retired from public life later in life and when he retired, he got serious about Christ. I don't know if the man was a Christian before or if he just became a believer afterwards. But his former friends, who knew him when he was a statesman, came to visit him, and they, they said, man, it seems like you're depressed. <laughs> seems like you're kind of a sad guy now. And his response is awesome. Listen to what he said. He said, no, I'm serious. For all are serious around me. God is serious in observing us. Christ is serious in interceding for us. The Spirit is serious in striving with us. The truths of God are serious. Our spiritual enemies are serious in their endeavors to ruin us. Poor lost sinners are serious in hell. Why then should not you and I be serious too? This is the wisdom that can be gained by the grace of God from lingering in the house of mourning. You and I are going to die. We should lay this to heart. Life is short. Then we meet God. Our only hope in death is Christ. So we should seek our highest joy in the things that last Namely, Christ and eternal life. And subordinately, we should seek our joy in the good gifts that that God gives us under the sun. We should long to live wisely, doing what matters, because the days are short. One life to live, it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. If we live with this mindset, then you and I will live well, And when the time comes, we also will die well. Amen? Let's pray. Father.